0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's show, I'm delighted to have Nick Whitfield joining us on the programme. Nick is the CEO and founder of City Unscripted, an organisation that seeks to connect travellers with knowledgeable local hosts. Uh, Nick, very warm welcome to you today and thank you ever so much for joining us.
1: Delighted to be here. Thank you.
0: It's a real pleasure having you with us um, on the airwaves, Nick. The whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And normally we would dive straight into that topic. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, let's start there. Um, I'm sure you'll agree it's proven to be one of the most immense challenges of our time for leaders of businesses, leaders of governments alike. But how has it affected you and your business, particularly being involved with the travel industry?
1: Yes, uh, it's not been great, uh, Scott, to be fair. Um, so I guess we had a very good start to the year in January and February, so we've been growing very, very fast. Uh, so we were looking forward to, you know, more than doubling again this year. Um, but, yes, we've been hit extremely hard. Um, sort of from March onwards, we've seen drop of about 95% of bookings. Uh, we've gone from about 40-plus people to about 6 now. now. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not been easy and it's, uh, it's been quite challenging, I suppose, just to remain positive and
0: to try and see the good in things and, and trying to make the best of it. So, um, yeah, it's been, it's been very tough. And albeit it has been a very challenging and indeed a very sensitive time, we are looking to try to find some silver lining in what has been a dark and dense cloud over all of us. Are there any positives that you can take from this experience in the sense that perhaps you've learned something about yourself or the people that you work with and how resilient they are?
1: Yeah, I think on the people front for sure. um, You know, it's always very surprising when, you you know, even when we were making people redundant back in the. March, April time, um, or putting them on further as well. Um, just how committed everybody had been to the business, and how can, how much they continue to support us, even when they're not working with us. And um, so that was extremely tough, but it is it is positive. We do work with some really really great people, um, and I think we've been able to help each other sort of get through it. And you know, there's, for us, it's been a time of of looking at what we've been doing. It's been taking a breath uh, and looking at how we can improve. So. You know, we're not downbeat. Um, we're actually really positive and we are looking at really quite improve, major improvements in our business and how we go about things. And also just in our general strategy. You know, I think what we don't want to be is in a, a year or two's time, uh, get into something, some, some sort of similar situation uh, where we still have these sort of problems. And um, so we are trying to broaden our, uh, our product offering, our services so that you know, even, even in the worst case, we should be protected. So, yes, there are definite positives, for sure. Mm.
0: And are there any certain specific ways that you're looking to diversify the business's offering in that sense?
1: Yes. So I suppose the most obvious one is for us is, you know, at the moment, or at least um, for the last few years since we've been set up, uh, I think it's about 90, 95% of our experiences have been sold to international travelers. And only about five percent to domestic travellers. So uh, we are desperately trying to uh, turn that around and uh, find something unique uh, and uh, enticing for the domestic market. Um, but again, that's quite challenging to know where's open and where's not. But um, at the same time, you know, when we find that proper mix of what people really want uh, in the domestic market, and hopefully we can still make some money out of it uh then that that should give us a really strong basis for, you know, at least to continue to survive. Um, you know, if not grow massively profitably, but um because the domestic market typically doesn't pay as much, sadly, as the international. But um that's that's been our main area of focus. Um at the same time we are looking to expand what our capability is on the site, so looking at artificial intelligence, proper matching between hosts and guests. So it is much closer to a sort of friend in the city, uh, you know, whether it's interest, personality. Um, so you know, we, we've got to, we've got to try and stay ahead of the competition, uh, and all these sort of technologies are part of uh, our, our approach for sure.
0: And if we sort of shift focus ever so slightly now to sort of leadership more broadly, I always like to sort of ask the question: What is a leader's role in your eyes? What do you feel? really goes through your mind when you hear that word leader what does it mean to you
1: i think it's 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 giving very strong direction um to the business very clear and uh strong values that people can believe in and buy into uh, and then giving them a clear goal of what you know quite a broad top level goal um, of what we need them to do and then empowering them to get on with it um I think people are extremely motivated when they've got leeway to do things the way they want to do them. Um, obviously, as a leader, that's one of the big challenges: is mm. to, to you know, hands-on, hands-off. Um, but I think, you know, from my own experience, um, when I wasn't running a business, um, you know, that was one of the biggest motivations: is when you are empowered to come up with your own ideas, test your own ideas, uh, and take responsibility. Mm. um so I think that that is one of the biggest challenges and the uh, in the balance um that it's the hardest to get.
0: Now, one of the reasons that I asked that question as well is because that sort of mention of goals there, having um, a clear aim in sight and empowering people to try and reach that goal, providing a sense of direction and motivation, that has been incredibly important during this last few months amid all of the uncertainty when leaders have been called upon to try and provide some clarity and some reassurance as well to people who may be very worried about what's been going on. But it can be a very lonely place having to shoulder that responsibility in being at the top of a business. And indeed, when you are at the top of the tree, there is nobody above you to consult, as it were, when you do need a little bit of inspiration and direction for yourself and reassurance that you are doing the right thing. So when you do sort of need a little bit of that support, where is it that you tend to look to for it? Uh,
1: The main place I look to is actually to my board of directors. Um, so I was very lucky to be able to uh, headhunt um, various people uh, that I thought were the best um, in their class or in their industry or area of growth. Uh, and I think I've got a very strong board, um, and they are brilliant for me to speak to. I speak to them at least once a month in our board meetings. Uh, and they're not only good at sort of uh assessing the general plans that I put forward for them, but also coming up with different ideas and different approaches um, so, and so and also you know on top of the border of directors I've got three other co founders um who are you know i'm totally transparent with and we we talk through everything so it's not as lonely as it could be um I guess the loneliest part is uh the just being responsible for the people um that we employ for freelancers as well, and um, just being able to make sure that we can keep as many of them on the payroll as we can and that we have enough cash flow to be able to do that and see this through that's that's probably the the biggest worry I've had not just now but in the in the past as well.
0: And thinking of what the future might bring within your industry in particular, of course, there's a lot of talk in other sectors that working practices could certainly be impacted, such as the uh, the remote working sort of things. But when you're in a very specific industry, there's only so much that you can, of course, change in the way that you operate. So what do you see the long-term impact being in your sector in particular? I think...
1: We, we had an office, for example, until about three weeks ago. We gave that up. We gave notice six months ago when it's all, all kicked off. Um, we will hopefully have an office again, but I think what it's made us do, um, is rethink how we, how we work with people, whether it's employees, whether it's freelancers and others. Um, I think, you know, there are positives to this, but I think one of the main things for us is that we will only be looking for hires in the UK that have very, very specific um, skill sets that we don't think we can get anywhere else. Um, for things like um, coding, programming and content and marketing um, and all those other sort of, so those, those sort of areas, um, we are looking to outsource those on a freelance basis to much cheaper jurisdictions. Um, we do hope still to have meetings in the future and have an office, like I say, but um, I think we won't be there full time. I think it will probably be two to three days a week, uh, realistically. And I think, you know, having spoken to a lot of other people in our industry, um, they sort of feel the same. I think people do want to get together. They, there is massive value in that. I met with my co-founders mm-hmm. for the first time <laughs> just last week, and that's in six weeks, uh, six months. So, um, you know, that was brilliant. So. I think there's always that importance of getting together, um but I also think that people you know there are elements of working from home or working from wherever um that is really powerful so for us you know getting young people to start with us if they can work um, anywhere in the world that they want, if we can be clear about what their role is and their goals um you know that's pretty that's pretty uh exciting for them mm. and it's pretty exciting for us as well so I think it definitely, I think the office market won't, won't be completely decimated, but uh, I think it's going to have a very tough time. Um, and I also worry about um, the move to uh, getting freelancers from outside the UK because the UK is just a you know, it's just an expensive location to employ people. Mm.
0: It certainly raised a lot of questions about mental health and well-being and thrust that issue back into the limelight this time, hasn't it? And the Im- importance of the office space, that is an argument that's very much at the forefront of keeping offices going because we value that human interaction so, so much. Um, and the social isolation element of lockdown as well as the uh, the worry has caused a lot of sort of the mental health trauma that we've seen over the uh, the last few months as well. Just how important is mental health in leadership? Do you think, both in terms of not just looking after that of your staff, but also your own as well, when you're in the hectic world of running a business, let alone during a time of crisis?
1: Yeah, I think I think without it, um, you're, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to be, a happy, you're not going to have a happy life, and you're certainly not going to have a successful life. So, I think if uh, you know, you do need to look after your own mental health. Um, I think fitness and seeing friends and getting out and about is, is really, really important. Um, I do think the mental health of your, of our, particularly our younger, um, employees, um, is, is quite a concern because, you know, they're on furlough. They may or may not be just in a house, a shared house. You know, they don't have a huge amount of space. They don't necessarily are able, aren't able to get out that much. Um, you know, we do try and, um, you know, keep regular contact, but it is difficult. If you're not seeing people, it's just very difficult. People are, people are still. I mean, it's a lot better than it was, but people still typically try and hide any sort of weakness. You know, it's a sort of well perceived weakness. Um, obviously, it isn't a weakness, but I think people just aren't necessarily that open to talking about it. So, trying to find a way to get people to talk about it, or find somebody in the business that has that real. Really clear empathy that people feel they can talk to, I think is is you know very very important
0: yeah of course mm. I would certainly agree with that um as well, Nick, for sure, now, just shifting focus ever so slightly, um you of course now have quite a few years of experience um having founded um your own business, but um with regards to those younger listeners amongst us who may be looking to step into leadership roles in established firms for the first time or maybe looking to start business for themselves. What advice do you have for them based upon your experience to really get them on the road to success?
1: Well, I think there are loads of, loads of good books out there to, to begin with, but I think I think where I would start, you know, you can have a great idea. Don't don't be too worried about protecting that. Nobody's really going to steal it. You know, that's not really how it works. I think you go out and talk to, to two sets of people. You talk to people... In the industry, and you will be amazed at how many people are willing to share their time and their knowledge. Um, you know, lots of people have had it hard way on the way up, but, um, so they are very much willing to help people who are taking that big step themselves. Uh, and then, um, the other, sorry, I've just forgotten the other thing that I was going to say. So talking to all those people who, who yeah, and then, uh, God, sorry, totally lost my train of thought to that second one (laughs) I'll come back to that
0: sorry Scott no that's absolutely fine nick um we are short of time um, in any case on the uh, the program today so i did want to address the uh, the future just before we do wrap things up um this um, afternoon um we do know that over the course of the uh, the next year we're going to have to continue to adjust to what they call the new normal in the way that we live the way that we work could be in place for quite some time yet if the prime minister's statement today is anything to go by for the benefit of those tuning into this we are recording on the 22nd of september so Prime Minister Boris Johnson has in the last couple of hours made a, an address to the House of Commons to say that there will be some tighter restrictions that could be in place for up to six months going into now next year. Um, but over this next 12 months or so, Nick, um, I'm interested to understand what it is that you're hoping to achieve as a business at City Unscripted and indeed, where do you see the business being this time next year?
1: a challenging uh, question but it's one we ask ourselves all the time um, we're not even really looking beyond six months at the moment but looking to 12 months I guess the first thing is to survive um, you know we, we did a raise just after um, the, the COVID came and uh, so we we have enough money now to last at least for a year um, but having said that we don't want to run out so if things are still bad then obviously uh, <laughs> you don't want to be able to raise any more money so I think the domestic focus for us is to try and get that selling, trying to, trying to cover costs, uh, break even. Um, that would be great. And once we get to that, then we can look to expanding again. You know, We are in 47 cities at the moment. Uh, we were planning to be in by 150 by the end of this year and 300 by the end of next year. So we've sort of lost a year. But I think if things begin to improve, sort of February, March, um, which is the hope, Uh, then we can start to expand again and get to hopefully about 150 cities by this time next year.
0: I certainly wish you all of the luck in the world in those endeavours, Nick, for sure. It's certainly going to be an interesting time over the the next few months. And just given how enlightening it's been having you join us on the programme today, I actually think it would be fantastic to catch up at some point in the next year and have you back on the show, just to see how some of those ambitions are coming to fruition. That would be great. I'd love that. Thank you, Scott. I'd certainly welcome that opportunity, Nick. I've really enjoyed having you join us on the programme today. And most importantly as well, until we do hopefully speak again, do please continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on, because as today's statement has proven, we're certainly not out of the woods with this one yet.
1: No, Well, you too, Scott. Thank you.
0: I would also reiterate that message to all listeners tuning into our podcast today. Do please continue to consider yourselves and others and look after yourselves as well because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives during this time. Um, Coming up next on the programme today, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Geoff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Geoff scored over 200 league goals for clubs including West Ham United and Stoke City, but most notably he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition following his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the Old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. Um, So Jeff will be coming to reflect on some of the key note um, areas of his career but he'll also be addressing the ongoing COVID-19 situation, his take on that as well as providing a message of support for our wonderful NHS. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as I'm relishing the opportunity to be speaking with Sir Jeff, and that is coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning.
2: Uh, Good morning, how are you?
0: Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it?
2: It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. (laughs) I hope it might last.
0: Absolutely. Your
2: thunderstorm it's, uh, it's lovely.
0: It is certainly after a storm and um Speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines
2: i'd want him to bury it um I, i've asked that question again question asked a bit um i've had a good run uh with, with this record and goodness me how it's nearly 60 years i guess if, if uh, we're looking at 2022 no i'd want him to bury it hey a, a for him he's a fantastic player uh tremendous goal scorer and if anybody i'd like to um Repeat what I achieved. It will be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with with Spurs in England. So, absolutely, and I want England to do well. I mean, I I want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter, and I just I really want the country to do well in in anything in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So, I'm not wanting to bury it, and I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if if. He can achieve that, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago, and it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievement. It's about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense is, I uh, wouldn't say material, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team.
0: Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened the ball nestled in the top corner England won 4 and lifted the World Cup but you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before haven't you
2: yes I think people um, I, I've off- I, t- I, I recall exactly what's amazing I can recall exactly what I was thinking um, at that moment obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game I knew the game was nearly finished I, as the ball came to me initially I was actually with my back to goal I was actually looking at the referee Uh Yards from me in the middle of the park, and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth, but waving play with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game's nearly finished. I'm thinking if the game's nearly finished, I'm having a whack this ball with everything I've got left. I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the corral by the time the ball boy gets hit back to uh, Hans Pilkowski, the German keeper, by that time, surely the game has got to be over. But as I always jokingly say, uh, I miss hit it and, it and it flew in. But I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about, uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I, mean, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours.
0: just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risk.
2: Absolutely, yes, absolutely. yes. Sir. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk. In a sense, because the game is unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going uh, to an element of, of, of risks, uh, of making but it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risk. In, in mm-hmm. the all walks of life, an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances, I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward.
0: And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, to uh, Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again who were going to the European Championships but that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service and we've been supporting the Health Service and applauding their efforts and we're hanging out thank you banners displaying drawings of rainbows very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966?
2: Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for, w- for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, whether there's enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, when you begin to realise during these turbulent times, how absolutely vital in uh, important in to have a, a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you you. Union to to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, and very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learnt that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66, and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembering exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that who's been around a long time, would still say he is the best coach he has worked with, and just, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a at national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's... It's important you prepare them and teach and coach the players to be to prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined and um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined moved from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just, uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach as who is, who is a team coach, who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, the wrong reason of passing a coach person to Al, who's then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the uh, country is is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, Leadership's important, and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching you or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching and management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes. But it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continues making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their
0: career completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, During your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true?
2: <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in, in those uh, medieval days, you there weren't football pitches or a place very rarely where you could play. You um, In our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac. It's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, in not as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and it's always a free us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, flying, you know, and making bows and wood gliders and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, of uh, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they. Um, Took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. That's astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you, there's nowhere else to play apart from the streets. and uh, we were actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true.
0: And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you?
2: Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rossdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We'd, we'd have, I was born in Ashton under the line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was... Pr- Probably, I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think, was uh, had a big influence. Going back to that third Golden World Cup in many years in the back garden. And when we moved on to it, we moved up market to a council house uh, somewhere in Chelmsford, And he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I, at that time, and even today, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed. And I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother. Didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic, but I was pretty, pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a footballing father. I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He he, um, And what happened with my my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school-leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school the age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football, it's just that uh, that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter, so that's that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about, as I, I kindly of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre half at school. Um, he. Uh, Tell I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically.
0: And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it?
2: Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, they sort of went messing about, t- between the two, I had the one first class game for Essex, uh, as you said, Egberth in, um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and nought not out. I think something I we won the game. Funny, I were a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v. Lancashire if you're up up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done with some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap, and I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season early games for those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for Mm. a big field player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 62 sixty, sixty-two, sixty-three season. The three years of all the World Cup.
0: And when we think about leadership in football.
2: Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had, uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realize, it's funny how you look at, I saw when Gordon passed away naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago. And they was obviously it's showing a lot of videos of banks scene. The programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realize how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic. Um, springing forward to smother balls, sort of, and not just tipping balls. He, agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometimes he'd have a new joke, and uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him. and remembered what a what a, um, a joke he was, and they're the two things that really stick out for for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, Uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players along with Bobby Moore and and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player put in the squad and Ray Wilson, our left back, I would always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup Some world-class players and Banksy was up there not with the best, the best for me. to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. My discipline was one of them and, and um, obviously Tony Wadding saw that and if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did and um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea, he lost a bit of weight and uh, although he was a little bit in himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain, uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his his general life, and you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player, but i compare him purely on ability, compare with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould, mm. without any shadow of a doubt, he, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think it was a a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club.
0: And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England?
2: Um, well, I think Ireland was just still sort well of with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in in America, it was the early days of. Um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham. That we, was a great time at the club, and I was fortunate to play with Boca City uh for three years, and it was a fantastic time. for that particular club, they won, of course the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close. We actually, I think we played Ajax in, in, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on a on goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course. But I think, uh, as, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club but I was. I uh, wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge. And I think uh, West, West, Br- West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contributions to that success that I've had. So, um, yes, it, uh, this, the American experience was just fantastic. I never thought of long-term being over there. That was a, 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 a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my uh, wife, oh, think she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was a that good was time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for, for about I think, a month, I think it was. And uh, enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. <laughs> new kitchen.
0: <laughs> so it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that... You realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career.
2: Yes, yeah, so I think it's. I think the that kind of uh, Whatever the word correct word is I don't know. Being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe maybe longer, maybe in longer, not so, so immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term when. Um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me to other people or introduce me on stage uh, as a legend. And, and I always and say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the, the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens, and you think more about it, or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly. Um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing things during my my football career. And I think I I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody necessarily looks at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up to. So I I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years probably.
0: For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sports, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them?
2: Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has natural characteristics. You can learn about management on mental courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is is within them to start with, but one of the things I learned from Alf because I take it into my my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss. You move them out, and I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I have learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at the time, without mentioning names. Um, And you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life.
0: And ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed.
2: Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice, yes.
0: So Jeff Thank you ever so much for joining us on the, uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast.